today on Laura Lynn and Friends. The RCMP immediately conducted an investigation from Ottawa, uh, Staff Sergeant Kerry Patrician, and he recommended right away that Bergerman be fired and that her husband be fired. What happened? Nothing. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Last Days. What a privilege to be here with you. I just want to let you know that uh, we are going to be talking about Nova Scotia today, and then I am going to be in Nova Scotia, and that is coming up um, very shortly, like in about 10 days or so. Um, and so I'm pretty excited about that, but I'm pretty alarmed at sort of some of the things that we've been hearing about Nova Scotia all of you remember the 22 murders. Uh, we've had Paul Palango on several times before to talk about what happened there. And now a stunning new revelation. Something took place last night that was, uh, or maybe it was the day before yesterday because I got the news yesterday. But it's um, put another sort of, um, another inter interesting twist into it all. Just to let you know, we were in Saskatoon last night. Mark Friesen and I did our big event. It was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for showing up. And the next event we're going to be at is Barrie, Ontario. We go on to Owen Sound and we make our way around Southern Ontario. Then we're in New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island and Nova Scotia. So go to my website to find all of that. That's the next one up. And at the end of the show, we'll tell you where all we're going to be. And we hope that you all come out. Let me tell you, um, people are loving getting together and, uh, you know, having an opportunity to be of like mind to stand up for our country and to stand up for justice. And we do really feel that something's gone a bit wrong in our nation with the justice systems of Canada. Have any of you noticed that? Um, I actually gave some information out the other night at a talk that I was doing. Now, that was in Prince Albert. And I let them know that I was not suicidal <laughs> because the information is so kind of stunning that you just want to make sure everyone knows, hey, in case somebody takes me out for talking, because you all know I have a very big mouth. And that is why I don't like Bill C-11 at all. In any case, I'm going to ask our guest to come on. Uh, Mr. Adam Rogers is going to join us today for the very first time. And also Paul Palango, who we've had on the show before. And I'm very honored because both of these gentlemen understand the, the Nova Scotia shooting they understand it intricately and intimately. They have studied all of the uh, facts surrounding all of this. And so we had quite a development last night. Uh, Mr. Palango, could you tell us uh, what has happened in Nova Scotia in the last day or so? Well, we were doing our regular Sunday night podcast, the nighttime podcast with Jordan Bonaparte. And uh, Jordan and I thought it would be a good idea to have Adam on because he had just written um, and published a book, Deficits of Trust, about the Mass Casualty Commission investigating the 22 murders that took place in April 2020. And about halfway through, three quarters of the way through the show, my phone rang, I'd forgotten to turn it off, and uh, my landline rang, and uh, my wife answered it, and I could see who had called, I could see who the number was, and I wondered what it was about. And just as Adam was talking um, about his book, um, I saw an email come in from someone else and telling me that Leon Jodry had committed suicide. 
And then it turned out the first call was the same thing from, from another uh, ex-law enforcement officer who I'm aware of, I, I know. And they were telling me, so it put us in a bit of a dramatic conundrum. Like, what do you do? Do you announce this? Uh, do you know if his, you know, when did it happen? Uh, did his, was his family informed? Uh, and the point of the whole thing was that I decided to, to, to say that this happened. I have not confirmed it, but I believe it to be true because my sources were reliable sources uh, who were familiar with the situation. And uh, Leon Jodry was an important person in the Portofic massacres because he was the neighbor who lived uh, on Portofic Crescent. And at 6.30 in the, well, at 3 in the morning, 3.34 in the morning, he smelled smoke and drove around the neighborhood and saw very little RCMP presence. In fact, the one mountain he ran into uh, didn't even search him or whatever while well, they're still searching for the gunman who killed 13 people in that neighborhood uh they didn't even search him they did they just told him to go away um and go back to his house or report to a a, a, a mounty uh, uh mounty cars at the entrance to the subdivision and then at 6 30 uh the shooter gabriel wortman's girlfriend uh common wife lisa banfield showed up at at uh Leon Jodry's door and Leon was stunned. Uh, they had a, a bit of a discussion. Leon was worried about her being there because Gabriel Wortman, the shooter, didn't like him. But she offered to leave. Then she comes in. He called the RCMP 911. They came and got him and never searched his house, never did anything, and just scooted off with her. And from that moment, almost immediately, he told uh 911 operator and then police later that she he didn't buy her story that she'd been in the woods all night because of the way she was dressed she had no shoes no socks uh no uh gloves she was wearing uh, yoga pants and a spandex top and he stuck to his story but unfortunately the police didn't want to hear it um the media didn't want to hear it the mass casualty commission didn't want to hear it and, you know, he, he, he was suffering. This guy went from being a robust, talkative guy and over the last two years got low, you know, just started to fade, uh, put on weight, had some psychiatric issues. And, you know, I think it's very, e you know, very uh, easy to see that he had sort of a, what do they call it? Survivor's uh, guilt. You know, as he said to me a number of times, you know, 13 of my neighbors died. My best friends were murdered. And why Why didn't I get killed? You know, because you got to remember, at Portapec, just about everyone got killed. You know, a couple of kids survived, didn't get shot. Uh, Andrew McDonald didn't get killed. He got wounded. And, and uh, Leon Jodry, who was one of the few witnesses to what was going on that night, never got over it. I think that's a fair assessment right there. Right. And um, Adam Rogers, uh, um, so is it true maybe that some people have never really believed the story of this gentleman that appears to have taken his life? Well, I think people believed his story, but the, you know, because it was credible and he had no reason to make it up. He, he was telling it uh, live as it took place. And so I think he was, he had a very credible account. 
But one of the major failings of the Mass Casualty Commission that was examining what took place, the police response, all that took place around the, uh, the shootings, was that they really marginalized the community, you know, the, the people that lived there, the family members of uh, those that died. An inquiry really should have started off by hearing from those uh, victims, family members, uh, people like Leon Jodry, but he never got a chance. And now I was involved in the Lionel Desmond inquiry. And in that inquiry, the family members, people that knew Corporal Desmond had a chance to get on the stand, say what had happened uh, to them, how they felt. And it was a way to process that trauma in a way that was really meaningful. You know, being on the stand in an official uh, capacity, it has a meaning that just talking to a friend or somebody else doesn't. But Leon Jodry never got that chance. Other uh, participants never got the chance. And this is one of the consequences. I mean, Laura Lynn, like one of the things I pointed out <clears throat> in my book and, in, and previous to that in articles I wrote in Frank magazine when it was alive, was that Leon was interviewed by the media, the mainstream media and the alternative media numerous times. And he told the same story over and over again, how he didn't believe Lisa Banfield's story, which was counter to the narrative uh, that the police and the government were, were, were prepared to put out. And it got to the point where he was interviewed by Global TV or Glo for one of their documentaries on the subject. And they left out everything he said about Lisa Banfield and left in just, you know, the she came to the door and that was it. But none of his opinions of what he saw. And he was an expert woodsman. He lived in the woods. He worked for the Department of Natural Resources. He knew the woods. He said, there's no way she was in the woods. She wasn't dirty. She didn't have, you know, there was too cold, et cetera, et cetera. And Global TV, for example, as I point out in the book, um, what they did at the time was when they were confronted with the fact that Leon's story was not used in their documentary, they said, well, his story, the editor at the time said, his story conflicted with the official police version of events. So we went with the official police version of events, even though it didn't make sense. It was like illogical. It could, they would not even address it in any way. And I thought that really got him down that to be treated that way. Absolutely. So, uh, uh, Adam Rogers, why did the police story conflict? Well, the, the police and then the Mass Casualty Commission itself very early on decided that uh, Ms. Banfield's account was credible. They were going to support that, that the main theme and, and sort of causal element of all of this was a domestic violence uh, situation between the, you know, uh, Gabriel Wartman and Ms. Banfield. And anything that seemed to conflict with that was pushed to the margins, ignored or, or actively suppressed. Uh, like with uh, Leon Jodry, I mean, this testimony, it conflicted with the police. I mean, you know, she was supposedly in the in the woods all night and all these things. And like Paul just said, her physical condition at that time didn't really match up. And you would think uh, an inquiry that was wanting to get to the bottom of things would have delved into those discrepancies and, you know, tried to examine them and get to the bottom of it. Instead, they went with their sort of preset narrative and just moved on and uh, moved on from Mr. Jodry. We've had occasion to talk to Paul Palango quite a bit on this. And Paul, you've outlined many, many 
uh, different discrepancies. Um, and it's an honor. I understand that the two of you have both independently researched this entire topic. And uh, I, I really appreciate that you're actually uh, ha having been uh, willing to be on together. That's just fantastic. Um, Mr. Rogers, have you come to the same conclusions as Paul Palango that um, that a lot of things don't add up? Uh, there was a police, was it just one police officer that was killed, um, a female police officer? Yeah, there was uh, one uh, police officer, Heidi Stevenson, who was killed. There was another, uh, Chad Morrison, who was wounded. But I come to a lot of the same conclusions. And the book is really a an attempt to back up my recommendation, which is that the RCMP be removed from Nova Scotia as the police force and replaced with a provincial force, as they're looking to do in British Columbia and Alberta. And I called it deficits of trust because there was really three. There was the police didn't trust the people and that's why they didn't give emergency warnings while things were taking place. And so lives were lost as a result. They didn't trust the people. They thought people would become vigilantes and start shooting at officers, uh, which you know studies show wouldn't have been the case. Then the people lost trust in the police because they kept, you know, they, they wouldn't give information. They were, uh, you know, not disclosing documents during to the commission, all of those things. But then the commission itself took on a lot of the same characteristics of the as the police and people lost trust in the commission. So I felt somewhat of a responsibility to put these things on the public record, show what really took place, identify some of the faults in the commission so that future public inquiries could learn from it. Well, and uh, Paul, you know, some of the determinations that you've come to is it just doesn't all add up very well. Like something is very wrong and might lead to actual corruption in the police force or whatever was going on there. We had the odd things like the money uh, from Brinks. And do, do both of you sort of align on all of the, the details of this story? Well, we sort of, we, we mostly align. We have a few little minor disagreements uh, probably, but they're only minor uh, disagreements. I think that, you know, Adam being a lawyer sees it in a, a very sort of lawyer, a lawyerish way. And uh, in his book, what I really like is the way he's taken apart various aspects of the investigation by the Mass Casualty Commission and shown what they did and how they basically confused issues for the public and made basically all what made things that should have been uh, exciting and newsworthy dull and boring and and caused the media and the public to switch off and not pay attention to what was going on. Um, you know, one of the things that I've highlighted, like, here's something, Laura Lynn, that the commission stopped its hearings, uh, its public hearings. When was that, uh, Adam, what, a month ago? A month ago, yeah. A month ago, and then last Thursday, they dumped 2,000 new documents on the public, 2,000 in one day. And in those documents, they so the media is basically overwhelmed. They're not, all this stuff has been pre-digested by the MCC, and the public is supposed to, okay, 2,000 documents come and go, three or four days, it's all gone. And I both Adam and I are probably not going to let that happen. I mean, one of the documents that they released um, regard was re with regard to something we talked about long ago, like in one of our first meetings. Um, 
about Assistant Commissioner Leona Lee Bergerman, who was in charge of the RCMP in, in uh, Nova Scotia at the time. And Bergerman, who comes from a family of Mounties, her sisters are Mountie, her brothers are Mounties, I think her father is a Mountie, her uncles are Mounties. Uh, you know, she rose to the top. And, you know, we might remember from the first press conference that was held uh, on April 19th, 2020, she was abysmal. She looked like a deer caught in the headlights. She basically disappeared from the the uh, from public view. Um, and then in the summer, but we didn't know it at the time, but her husband and the husband of her one of her officers under her, uh, Janice Gray, who ran the uh, RCMP in Halifax, their husbands were hired to be go-betweens between them and the Mass Casualty Commission. They're both Mounties. One's a Mountie, one was an ex-Mountie. During this same period, the RCMP began destroying documents. And we talked about this about a year ago, that I got copies of a memorandum, the moratorium on the destruction of documents, which was dated October 15th, 2020, while her husband, uh, Bergerman's husband, was in charge of the, the documents and Janice Gray's husband was in charge of the documents. We wrote about this. We found out about it in June or so, 2021, and wrote about it in Frank magazine. And the documents from the other day showed that the RCMP immediately conducted an investigation from Ottawa, uh, Staff Sergeant Kerry Patrician, and he recommended right away that Bergerman be fired and that her husband be fired. What happened? Nothing. We, the MCC never revealed this document. Uh, in the fall of 2021, the Justice Minister for Nova Scotia, Brad uh, Johns, brought Bergerman's name up in the House of Assembly to praise her for the work she had done. Uh, although she hadn't testified at the MCC. She finally testified at the MCC on August 15th, August 22nd, I should say, a few months ago. But the MCC didn't interview her until August 5th, as Adam points out in his book, until she had reviewed everything everyone had said. And then she was never questioned about her husband, the destruction of evidence, what evidence was dis was done. The fact that the RCMP wanted to fire her, but allowed her to resign and retire. And all these documents come out well after she has gone in a dump of 2,000 other documents. Absolutely outrageous, corrupt. And Adam, you could add to it if you wish. I mean, Well, yeah. you, don't, you don't need a moratorium on something that isn't happening. So they were clearly destroying evidence, destroying documents, deleting files. And so, you know, the moratorium demand or, or instruction uh, was meaningful just to know that that was happening. And so that's part of the problem with the RCMP. And the other is all this, you know, the, the, that was just an egregious conflict of interest. And they just they just did it and assumed nobody was going to care, I guess, uh, when they brought in these husbands to, to these important positions. You know, they're. One of the big issues with the RCMP in Nova Scotia is that there's no real oversight. And I'm sure this is what people in Alberta and British Columbia are looking at too, is like, well, no, but they don't answer to anybody in Nova Scotia. They answer to Ottawa. They answer to the national uh, leadership of the RCMP and nothing, uh, you know, no political masters, no civilian oversight really in Nova Scotia 
seem to be looking at the RCMP in any meaningful way. So, you know, that's that's not really how policing should be in a in a province. It's all very disturbing um, and leads us to believe that something else is going on and, and that's not very pretty for Canada. Well, you know, one of the things that's not pretty for Canada, because what we're getting here from government, you know, at all levels, you know, municipal, provincial, and at the federal level, is this basically uh, knee-jerk, thin patriotism, uh, where, you know, the thin blue line patriotism. This is the RCMP. They're the National Police Force of Canada. They must be protected, in spite of the fact there's been 30 years of warning signs flashing bright red. There are problems with this force that can't be fixed, that the force is unsustainable in its present form. And added to, you know, adding to what Adam said, that this force has contracts as a contract police force of the provinces outside of Ontario and Quebec that are crazy. I mean, there is no oversight on this force. There are no, in the Nova Scotia agreement, for example, there's no mechanism for the province to exert any control over the force. They can't even know about Bergerman, uh, for example, uh, being threatened with being fired because they're not told that. She's the chief police officer in the province and nobody can do anything about it, good, bad, or otherwise. Same thing's going on in Alberta and British Columbia where they're looking at this. But the RCMP will and its followers will, they're like a cult. They'll, they'll protest, cry, whine, whatever, to make sure nothing changes with the RCMP. And that's entirely wrong. That's not patriotic. Patriotism is dealing with the issue and making things stronger and making things right. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's such a, a difficult thing to make big changes like this take place because, like Paul said, you know, the RCMP has such a strong image in Canada, one of the experts, one of the many experts that the Mass Casualty Commission brought in was a British professor talking about how the, how change in the British police was so difficult because, you know, they had reached a revered status like the RCMP. It's a symbol of Canada, so it's a difficult thing to change. Plus, you know, part, you need to have public momentum and public opinion behind it. And the Mass Casualty Commission, like Paul was saying earlier, seemed to be actively trying to limit the size of its audience. And they had to know because they had, you know, a dozen or 15 public relations staff that making, having a smaller audience, making things less dramatic, less interesting was going to limit that audience and then limit the opportunity for momentum to gather for change, uh, which is so difficult anyway, but they made it much more difficult just by the, the choices of procedure. And they must have been deliberate choices. I, can, I can't imagine otherwise. Wow. So you're, are you both from Nova Scotia then? Well, we both live here. I, Adam, you're for, forever from Nova Scotia. I'm from here. Yeah. Born and born and raised. Because uh, we've got a lot of people from Nova Scotia uh, actually on the line and making comments. And this has really rattled the whole community. It's rattled the feeling of safety and trust in the justice system. Yeah. Well, absolutely. And, and there's reasons for that. The RCMP model for policing is basically, I see one of your common co commenters said that, oh, well, it was a rural area and, you know, it's the, the RCMP couldn't, no police force could get there on time. That's wrong. 
because the RCMP model for policing is basically virtually unchanged from 1874 when they started out. It's, uh, you know, one man on a horse or in a car or one woman on a horse or a car uh, going here, there and everywhere uh, under policing, under supervision, um, all the problems, you know, un under resourcing uh, that, you know, many of the things that happened uh, during the massacre revealed they had poor communications, poor radios. Uh, Heidi Stevenson was killed. She, you know, she was 48 years old or whatever had been a Mountie all her life, uh, but she'd been on the musical ride for 13 and a half years. She wasn't carbine trained. She wasn't a, basically a combat officer. She was a public relations, school relations, uh, uh, musical ride rider. And then she ended up in a situation with a guy who had already killed 19 people by the time he got to her, and she was alone. She shouldn't have been alone, but the RCMP defended her as being, oh, she was heroic. And look what she did. She shouldn't have been where she was. And the, the, the better model for policing is what you're seeing now in Ontario and Quebec with large regional police forces that work together. They're trained the same. The RCMP has different training than other police forces. The RCMP says we're better trained. Objectively, they're not. The best trained police forces are municipal police forces in Canada now, the Ontario Provincial Police, the Sûreté de Quebec. The RCMP lags way behind them and, and is getting farther and farther, uh, farther, falling farther and farther behind. We need a new model for policing, and, uh, it, and it has to be brought down to the grassroots level where the provinces and the municipalities who are responsible for policing have full control about it. Because the, the other problem is that the RCMP gets hired on the cheap. They come in, they have a, a federal... Uh, sort of view of problems. So when they go into become your municipal or provincial police, they're there to bring in federal the federal agenda into policing and ignore the local problems. One of the examples that was pointed out to me recently was they had there's an RCMP detachment where everyone's getting training in uh, Aboriginal policing, but there's no Aboriginals in that area. But it's a federal prerogative that they have to do that. And that's not the issue in that community. But that's an example of how it works. There's nothing that the provincial justice minister can do about it. They have no say over what the RCMP does. And these are where the problems come from. It's political foolishness, as the person puts, pointed out. It's the easy road. It's, it's, it's political imperatives. And, and then the final problem is the commissioner of the RCMP, as we've seen, is politicized that you know beginning in 1984 the rcmp commissioner was made a deputy minister in the federal government and is appointed by and serves at the pleasure of the prime minister like some of the better banana republics this is not the way policing should work in a democracy and mr rogers one of the questions is uh regarding that four hundred thousand. was it was it directly four hundred thousand or over that amount uh has that ever been solved what went on there Oh, with the uh, the cash that uh, Wartman uh, took out from Brinks. So there were some emails that uh, showed that he had made this request to uh, CIBC, his bank, that he wanted to withdraw this money in cash. And so that seemed to answer some questions. But what it didn't answer was, how did he have $475,000 in cash uh, as a denturist? 
And this is something that the Mass Casualty Commission was, uh, I wouldn't say reluctant, they refused to get into it. There was no discussion of his, his criminal past, of, you know, he had a history of, of cross-border smuggling, uh, some evidence that he was involved in drug dealing at a, at a scale, some really uh, compelling circumstantial evidence that he was involved uh, perhaps as a, a police agent or informant. And none of these things were explored to any depth whatsoever at the Mass Casualty Commission. And, uh, you know, it, it, part of what they were supposed to do was figure out what happened. And they really refused to go down any dark alleys or, or anywhere where they weren't comfortable with what had taken place or something wasn't clear. They just didn't dig in like they really should have. Well, one of the things that Adam points out in his, in his book the, you know, that I thought was really, really uh, on point was how the, you know, the, the public inquiry into this should have been designed to get to the truth. But they took a completely different approach that um, I'll let you explain it, Adam, because you did it well, last night. Yeah. So one of the uh, one of the things I thought, uh, you know, because uh, there was three commissioners appointed. There was uh, Michael McDonald, who was the former chief justice of Nova Scotia, who sat on the Court of Appeal here, who was retired as a judge. There was Leanne Fitch, who was a uh, former chief of police in Fredericton. And a police consultant. And then there was Kim Stanton, Dr. Kim Stanton, who's a lawyer based in Toronto, had been the lawyer for Leaf uh, and had written a book on inquiries. And hers was more of an international perspective, looking at the murdered and missing Indigenous uh, women and girls inquiry and comparing that internationally to things like, you know, the South African post-apartheid inquiries. And in those cases, the facts, the situation had already been established. And what the inquiry was designed to do was repair relationships, bring people back together. And so it was a restorative inquiry. Well, it seemed like the Mass Casualty Commission was taking that approach, but without doing the first part of where they go get the facts, establish what really happened, and then with those facts in hand, go about repairing whatever relationships need to be repaired. Instead, they jumped to a conclusion about what took place and just went from there. But it didn't work because unless people agree on what's taking place, then how can you effectively repair relationships? And by the way, the police didn't seem all that inclined to, to try to repair the relationships. There were very few apologies, uh, very little, con almost no contrition out of any of them, certainly in an official capacity. Uh, so, you know, it was, I, I think, a real failing of the inquiry just as a their entire approach seemed to be the wrong kind of inquiry. And then this brings us back to uh, Leon Jodry. The, the, the focus of the inquiry is to be trauma-informed. And from that, I took, you took that they meant they didn't want to traumatize the families of the dead and the victims. And so, but what they did, by they stayed away from any of... Uh, almost anything that was controversial, but they also boxed out the families. And then they boxed out people like Leon Jodry, who should have been testified, should have been given his day to tell his story. And they ended up traumatizing him to the point where we saw what the terrible thing that happened. I mean, it's on them in my mind because they're the one group that could have dealt with this guy. He was very troubled at the end. Uh, you know, I've been dealing with him for over two years and I watched his slide 
And, you know, uh, the, my associate who helps me, Chad, was going to call him the other day and missed the call and was just devastated that this happened yesterday. Um, but, you know, the commission said it's set up not to traumatize anyone. They've traumatized virtually all the families and the public and many of the people who are, who are part party to this thing. You know, it, so it's, just, it's horrible. I did have someone from Nova Scotia who really, uh, you know, gave me a call and uh, he tells me about all things Nova Scotia. And he, he basically said, is there any chance that he would have been murdered for any reason? Can you see that there was anything that would be threatening to this investigation, a piece of the puzzle he would know? Um, or do you really, uh, it seems that you believe that he has actually taken his life, but um, people always question because there's, there's so many different things. Well, the people I've talked to uh, about what happened um, late last night, I mean, um, what happened in the last days, um, Leon was complaining he had no work, no money. He wanted to move out of Portapic. He couldn't afford it. He was running out of food. Um, the police had taken away his guns. Uh, he couldn't even go hunt and get himself a deer. Um, in the end, uh, it appears that from the information I have that he had a generator in the house, uh, that, uh, he had it in his bedroom. The door was closed. His two beloved dogs, Iserman and Basil were in the other part of the house and around uh, just after noon yesterday, someone, a neighbor, there aren't many neighbors there, but somebody heard the dogs uh, barking and barking and barking, and they went to yeah. investigate yeah. and they found the scene. So the police arrived around uh, 1220 yesterday afternoon, and then they were at the scene most of the day. I don't think in that situation that uh, there was anything nefarious directly that happened. I think that he was just worn down and um just lost his way i mean it's horrible i wish i could have done more you know at one point he wanted to come and live at our house about a year and a half ago and he instead of doing that I, you know I, we could we had a bunch of cats and his dogs were kind of uh wild um and you know if i'd known at the end he was that bad i would have had him come here live here you know like leon come live here but he, right. you know, he we don't he, know yeah, but he went, you know, at one point last winter, he he bought himself a, a shed, basically, a, a prefab small shed house, moved it into the woods at Moose River and was going to camp out in the woods, and he almost froze to death. Then he had to go live at a friend's house and live on the couch, and eventually he moved back into his house in Portapec, and that's where he died. Yeah. And and Adam, would you say the same thing that you you don't see any reason to believe anything other than that he it's a very sad end to his life? Yeah, I think uh, what what Paul, I mean, I, I wouldn't have any uh, first or second hand information. It's just from what I'm hearing, and everything adds up. And uh, you know, my involvement in the Desmond inquiry, there, we had some experts that came in to speak about suicide and. You know, unfortunately, Leon Jodry, just by being a single man of his age, uh, you know, was in a high risk group, you know, and there's too many uh, men and, uh, and young guys, uh, you know, that are in that situation and don't see a way out. But, you know, so 
but one of the, some of the expertise that we heard during the Mass Casualty Commission was from uh, experts out of Norway where they had the, that terrible shooting uh, and then out of uh, after 9-11 in New York. And some of the lessons there seem to be that, you know, this, this heartache, it just lasts a long time. And there's no easy solution. Even counseling, all this stuff is good for people. But what they really need at a sort of foundational level is to know that something has come of the tragedy, that there's been some, you know, change made, something meaningful. And so they can have some consolation and move forward with that. In this case, you know, we're, we're at a point now, you know, two and a half years on, and I don't know if people have the confidence that that kind of change is really going to take place, whether the Mass Casualty Commission is going to recommend it or whether governments would implement it if they did. Well, in hindsight of all of it, have any of the police officers been so courageous as to say anything outside of the official narrative? Very little. What has happened? I mean, you have to understand, Laura Lynn, that what has happened here, like if you look at um, Commissioner Brenda Lucky, uh, the way her political interference uh, allegations were handled, where she called and asked about guns and all that stuff. And then they said, well, the, the, uh, the, the audio tape uh, was lost. And then she testifies at the Mass Casualty Commission, like Bergerman testified. And none of the bad stuff about Bergerman was brought in there, only released after she had testified, so she wasn't questioned about it. Same thing with Lucky. She said, oh, there was no political interference, and the audio tape was lost. Then the audio tape is found last week or so, and you find out, yes, there was political interference. That's what she was doing. She was acting on behalf of the government. But one of the things she said and highlighted was, Lucky said, oh, there were serious communications problems in Nova Scotia right from the beginning. I couldn't get communication. You know, They weren't talking to each other properly. They weren't doing this. They weren't doing that. What happened under Lucky's command? The person in charge of communications, Inspector Dustine Rodier, got promoted. Chris Leather, the chief superintendent, who was the crops officer, got promoted. Superintendent um, Darren Campbell got promoted. All the key people in this thing were promoted before the Mass Casualty Commission even met. So it tells you that the RCMP, including Lucky, had come to the conclusion well beforehand that nothing bad had happened. They'd done their best and everything was swept under the carpet and they thought it would stay under the carpet. And it hasn't gone that way. Stuff is coming out. And I think at the end of the day, we're going to get some heroic officer who's going to come forward and tell us what really happened. Because there, you know, the, the thing about policing is most people in policing are honest people who feel they're there to serve the public. And this hurts them a lot to be in this position. And they want to get the truth out. You know, many of the others are there for the pension and the perks. I'd hate to say it, and the promotions and whatever. That's well, their our loyalty. Whole, our whole world has shown that uh, people really bow, you know, to the authorities and whoever's doing their paycheck, and maybe they get paid off. We've got all kinds of things that we don't know about, and it happens uh, in all of our seems, uh, you know, all the 
the places of authority in our country. We've seen it happen. Um, well, we'd, we'd like to let everybody know where they can each get both of your books. And if you have anything more to add, I certainly uh, would welcome you to do that. Um, this is a very sad development. And Nova Scotia has kind of a mar on it because of this. And unless there is something that's fixed, I don't know if you want to comment to this, um, uh, Adam. Where's well, Adam? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there needs to be some change. You know, uh, when I think of, you know, you're asked the question about, well, were there any, you know, expressions of contrition or anything like that? One of the things the mass casualty really did in misinterpreting their trauma-informed mandate was protect senior police officers who weren't really on scene, didn't see any violence uh, or violent scenes directly, but were in commanding positions in testified by video or they weren't cross-examined, all these protections. Now, a couple uh, of those staff sergeants were Myers and Addie McCollum, and both expressed, you know, that they regretted missing things. They look back and they're like, well, I could have done this different, which is a very natural thing for people to do after something goes wrong. You know, if you're a pitcher and you give up a home run, you're not thinking you threw a great pitch. Having a little bit of problems. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry. Okay. You know? Yeah. yeah now so you're now, in those two cases, the gentleman did express some regrets. Adam McCollum, when they were at the Fisher's home, Paul, you would know all this, uh, you know, wished they had, he had charged on instead of staging at a distance. Bruce Breyers saw the Heidi Stevenson request for a public alert to go out. Well, he didn't see it at the time. He saw it after the fact and was very upset that he didn't see it at the time and has to live with that now. And that all came out during their testimony. And it just reinforced. It just reinforced to me again how important it is for people to get on the stand and have their say and process that trauma in that manner. Right. Do you do you both feel that that what added to all of this was that he was never given like the just respect maybe for the key sort of information he had? Absolutely. I mean, he he said, "Why don't they believe me? Why don't they why do they keep ignoring what I say?" You know, and yeah, uh, a... and, and uh, you know, get, getting back to the RCMP, I mean, one of the things we have to understand in this country is that this force is unsustainable. There are not enough people going into the force. Its model is wrong for policing in Canada. Its contract policing is an old way of doing policing. It's unaccountable. Uh, it doesn't work. It's expensive, it's dangerous, but you're getting, you know, you, you see, look what's happening in Surrey, where Surrey set up its own police force and not they took the RCMP out of there. And the RCMP is fighting tooth and nail to maintain that detachment. And one of the problems is that you got in Surrey, they made the mistake of hiring ex Mounties to run the force. They have a different philosophy of policing than municipal police forces everywhere. You have a large um, contingent of people in society who are related to Mounties, who, who buy into the Mounties story, who have fond memories of the musical ride. They want to keep the Mounties, but they're not looking at it rationally or objectively about what the problems are with this police force. 
And hopefully Alberta, which seems to be moving in that direction, will do something conclusive and, and, and sort of get, we've got to move them for the betterment of the country and the betterment of the force. Make the, make the RCMP a federal police force and that's it. They're not. Do you, do you think the police are, are a little disconcerted by this latest development that it might look bad on them? I don't even know if they care anymore. There's so much that they looks bad on them. It's just right. water off a duck's back. I mean, they look at it like, oh, there they are. People complaining about us again. Do you know how dangerous it is for us to go out there and do our jobs? Well, policing is not the most dangerous job in the world. Far from it. I mean, you want to be have a dangerous job, be a fisherman. Work in, work in construction. Uh, you know, drive a tractor trailer. Um, be a taxi driver. Those are much more dangerous jobs. Yes, they have dangerous jobs, but they're well-protected, they're well-paid, and uh, they get great benefits, and they're there to, to serve the public. That's their job. They're, they're there. They sign up for that job. And one of the things that happened here, that's the same thing that happened in Uvalde, Texas, you had policemen show up, who were afraid to get hurt. That's not serving the public. Yeah. And then commanders, Paul, who wouldn't send them into a situation, you know, even when some of the uh, some of the constables and corporals wanted to be more aggressive, then the command structure was, you know, holding them back from uh, getting involved. So, you know, I, I think people in Alberta and British Columbia that are making these decisions now are thinking about what the RCMP uh, role in their province might be. Uh, you know, can look to this Nova Scotia situation because I think there's going to be a domino effect if the government, if the man takes the courageous decision to create a Nova Scotia police force and replace the RCMP, then I think that's going to set an example for other provinces to do the same. And that's it. I, I agree 100%. Wow. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. And so would you each tell us how anybody could uh, follow you or uh, get your books? Uh, we'll start with you, Mr. Palango. Um, where can we get your book? Uh, people, I, I think this is going to go down. Also, I'd like to know if, if any of you would follow the uh, Honey and Barry Sherman murders, um, since you're into investigation, if that's ever come across your mind to dig into that. Uh uh, Kevin Donovan's done a lot of work on that for the Toronto Star, and and uh, I wouldn't even want to to attempt to, to do something like that. <laughs> okay, yeah. all right. Yeah. So there, there's your book, Twenty Two Murders, and uh, that looks like you can get that on Amazon. So you can get it anywhere. It's, Excellent. It's, it's everywhere. Excellent. Thank you. And you, Adam. Well, you can get mine on Apple Books. Uh, it's it's originally published through an e-publisher called Smashwords, where you can go directly. Uh, but Apple Books, Kobo, Scribd, all those places, uh, you, you can find the e-book there. And uh, you talk talk about the Sherman murders. Like uh, I have to, I have to look at that. Whoops. Yeah, I'd I'd love it if you did. I mean, it's such a a very very interesting and just a very strange, another very strange happening in Canada. And it's worthy of investigation. And I do believe someone's written a book. I don't know if that's the same guy that reports on it in the star, but. Um, oh, sorry. All right. So I, sorry. 
don't know why the connection's fading in and out there, but uh, I was doing coverage of the Mass Casualty Commission in these YouTube videos I was doing on a daily basis, but now I'm doing a weekly YouTube summary of Canadian law, what's going on. I do five or six stories and, uh, you know, people can just look me up on YouTube. But maybe I'll cover the Sherman situation because I remember reading about it. It was very interesting, uh, very interesting story. Very, very interesting. I mean, uh, they were tied in with Trudeau, which is interesting, uh, as major donors to the Liberal Party. And it was found out that there was going to be a um, an investigation of some of the donations they'd made to the tune that somebody is reporting that had it been found out, uh, it would have put the Liberal government in a very, very difficult position, perhaps even affecting the Trudeau uh, prime ministership because it it would have been bad but because they were murdered and then they were murdered in a very heinous and bizarre way left in um in sort of a you know in an odd position yeah. they were sort of statued and that was weird also they were uh the makers of hydroxychloroquine which has become a very big drug i've actually been on hydroxychloroquine it's one of the reasons i followed this so closely they oh, were yeah. manufacturers of hydroxychloroquine at apotex the um, the organization or, you know, the company that they ran. And, um, and so hydroxychloroquine beca be became a big deal. Uh, so I don't know, something's very weird that they were murdered. Then it was declared a suicide and the family went berserk and said, there's no way that they committed suicide. And then like somebody would have had to put them in these odd positions. I mean, it just, nothing made sense. But the police, again, very quickly came to conclusions that were completely false. And that's why it's become such an intrigue. Well, you look no worse for wear for having taken the uh, the medication or the drug. Yeah, I'm doing coffee. pretty good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it saved my but life. Yeah, police, I was told it. Police investigate, you know, they, they come to the first conclusion and, and they stick with it almost no matter what. I've seen that many times. Right. Is it an embarrassment? It's kind of like they've, they don't want to ruin their reputation by going back or changing something. Yeah, exactly. When most people, if they're, you know, they see somebody that is confronted with new, more compelling information and they change their mind, they would respect that. But, uh, you know, they, they don't want to be seen I mean, that way. Yeah, very interesting. I think it's how men, men are very, <laughs> they don't like to say uh, Laura Lynn, excuse yeah. me. The people oh, in charge, uh, right, up, right across the board, Right. In Nova Scotia, were female commanders. Right. <laughs> uh, Lee Bergerman, Janice yeah. Gray, Dustin Rodier. They had more than their that... fair share right to the top of the RCMP. You're so right. You're so very right. And I, you know, I, I truly believe that all injustice should be looked into. And this continues to just be such an interesting drama mm -hmm. as it unfolds. I, it, it kind of feels like there will always be yet one more saga, one more piece that might be you know, keep coming forward and we just haven't heard the end of it. So, well, I hope to do this again. And I thank you gentlemen for coming on together and for giving us such a, a very exclusive time with the both of you. And we welcome this to happen again and good luck in the sales of your books and in all that you do for Canada. We appreciate it. Thank you for having us on and, and rest in peace to Leon Jodry. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Absolutely fascinating. Um, very sad. People are important in how they feel. Um,
it's important to honor people. We don't have a culture of honor actually right now, and we need that. Those are two great guys looking it up, putting their reputations on the line to kind of look into something that's a little bit controversial here in Canada. Thank you all for being with me today. I sure do appreciate it. Thank you for um, standing with us as we go across the country. I appreciate your support, your kindness in all of this. I do want to say that something very interesting happened. So after we had Jeremy, Jeremy McKenzie's girlfriend on the other night, within two hours, Jeremy was out of, um, you know, where they put you in, uh, what's that called, JT? Solitary confinement, yeah. Um, I was thinking of privacy something, but it's it's uh, very bad. It's solitary confinement. And they we did a show on it, and so did Viva Frey. And it was highlighted by a gentleman in Canada that said we need to, like, could all the independent producers start speaking about this? And wouldn't you know, Jeremy was taken out of solitary confinement within a couple of hours. And I think that's very good. And I thank them for doing that. Let's stop torturing people and let's stop any use of political prisoners in this country. It's not right. It's not okay. Um, one of the things that we're going to be discussing um, in this next week or so is going to be gold and silver. And we want you to know that there is a uh, company that you can contact that we feel we had so many people saying like, who do you trust? Well, we personally trust um, Sun City Silver and Gold. And that is with Steve. And we want you to email him at sovereignize at protonmail.com. Uh, Steve Morell is a gentleman that has helped us. He's been on the show. He's been in this business for a couple of decades. He understands what's happening. He says that silver is very low right now. And I, I personally feel and feel in the air that there's problems with the money and it doesn't take a rocket science. You all know that as well. So if you're looking to purchase gold or silver, that's who we recommend speaking with. But, um, think about all the options that you have and uh, be safe and be careful at this time. We're enjoying Mark Friesen and I going out on these um, events that we're on. We're going to Barrie uh, in Ontario. That will be our very next event. And then we'll have several of them after that. If you can go to my website, uh, JT, if we can get those up on the website somehow, all of the many different places we'll be going to because um, we're going all through Ontario, so the, the lower part of Ontario, and then over to New Brunswick, Prince Edward Island, and Nova Scotia. So the only place that we're not going to is Newfoundland, and I'm kind of sad about that. We're thinking about if there's any possible way to do that. I want to leave you with a scripture today. Um, we certainly are completely befuddled by the evil that is taking place. Last night at my event, I actually uh, read a verse in the Bible that I believe talks about the globalists. Did you know the Bible talks about the globalists? Evil ones. I guess it would be about anyone who does evil and does not come to justice. You know God sees it all right in the very top layers of a country all the way down to our personal lives god sees everything that we do and he is the god of justice keeping tabs and watching and you know it's out of love because he's such a loving and great god that he wants to reward us when we are righteous and when we do what's right when we walk in obedience do you know that god will never leave you or forsake you even if you do wrong 
The Bible says that God is faithful even when we are not faithful. That means to me that he knows that we can be unfaithful. So some of us in our lives, we've been deceptive. Uh, Paul talked about, um, you know, some of the, the groups, the new Christians that he was speaking to. And he said, some of you were like this. You were adulterers, you were murderers, you were thieves. But God has forgiven you, so it's a new day. As soon as we ask the Lord for forgiveness, we're on the right side. But this is what the Bible has to say about those who walk in deception and lies. It says, not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Ah, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they tell lies. Gotta move back because my eyes. <laughs> All right. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad, and let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, the Lord blesses the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield. I believe lately that I've been surrounded with a shield. I've been blessed. I felt the favor of God, even though we're dealing with such treacherous things. I pray that you will understand that when you are walking in obedience to God and when you're walking as one who wants to be righteous before him and you're walking in the forgiveness of God, that he will surround you as a shield. Your shield and buckler, your strength, your source of power, even when this world can be a very, very dark place. God loves you. And even as we face these trying times in Canada and we've got all kinds of things going on, we've got sudden adult death syndrome, we've got the death counts up and nobody knows why people are passing away in Alberta. God is on the throne. God knows exactly what's going on. And for those who take bribes and those who succumb to the God of this world, there will be judgment. But for the righteous, for those who walk in obedience, his favor shall be your shield. Amen. I've loved being here with you. Thank you for being here with me. God bless. You know, it's not easy to deliver the truth of what our sick world is doing, but for some of us, we feel that we have no choice. Because if we are silent about these abominable things, then we are letting evil go unchecked and we cannot do that. For those of you wonderful people who are writing me and are sharing your encouragement, I am deeply grateful. Thank you for all the letters that you've been sending. Thank you for the donations and the support. I found out that in order to speak the truth, you have to become very, very strong. If you would go to my website at www.lauralyn.tv, you'll find all of the ways that you can contact me. Remember, my friends, all is well. All is well.
Thanks for joining me.